Michelle Obama got bars. here to read and break down maybe this outdated article but first I want to welcome everybody to Mindstream Mindstream 12 um, I hope you've enjoyed the enjoyed the mess so far uh, this is just the beginning um, the idea is to crank out about 10 of these bad boys See how far I can take it. It's gonna be a little music, a little sound effects, a little news, a little artistic stuff. <laughs> artistic, uh, I probably cut that part up. But anyways, today's article. And and when I say today, it's it's a little outdated. So this article is actually from March 4th, 2019. And it was written by Joe Pinkstone for Mail Online and AFP. This was published on the DailyMail.com in their science section. The uh, header, the title for this article is, Is the Internet a Completely Out of Control Monster? Worldwide Web Creator Tim Bernays-Lee Successor... <laughs> so, so this guy... Tim Bernays-Lee's successor at CERN says the web has been corrupted with bullying, fake news, and hysteria as it reaches its 30th birthday. It's probably the same true for me when I turn 30, but... And some of the, the bullet points here. Francois Flukiger became the head of the Physics Institute's web team in 1994. He and Tim Bernays-Lee have both spoken out about harmless uses of the internet. This is probably one of them. It was originally designed as a tool to help scientists share data around the world. 
its release into the public domain in the early 1990s sparked digital revolution. So the World Wide Web was invented nearly 30 years ago at the Swiss Physics Institution to let scientists openly share data between themselves. Francois Flukiger, I'm going to pronounce his name that way, says privacy threats, fake news and online bullying threatened to turn the web into an uncontrollable force. He took over the reins of CERN's web team from Sir Tim when the British pioneer began working at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, in 1994. Mr. Flukiger, now retired, held the invention as one of the three major inventions from the 20th century that enabled the birth of the digital, the digital society alongside the Internet Protocol, IP, and Google's search algorithms. I'll search your algorithms. He lamented the online bullying, fake news, and mass hysteria that flourish online as well as threats to privacy. It doesn't even make any sense. He lamented the online bullying, fake news, and mass hysteria that flourish online as well as threats to privacy. And that does make sense. One has to ask oneself if we did not, in the end, create a completely out-of-control monster, he said. Sir Tim invented the World Wide Web 30 years ago this month before it sputtered into life at the end of 1990 when the first web navigator servers spun into action. And then there's a advertisement in the middle of this article, Harvey Weinstein's uh, deformed penis explained. The browser was released outside of CERN in early 1991, first to other research institutions and later to the public. Primitive forms of the Internet, a network linking computers, had been tried before, but it was the World Wide Web that allowed web pages to become accessed from a browser. Sir Tim was responsible for CERN's internal directory, but was interested in ways to let the thousands of scientists around the world who cooperated with the lab to more easily share their work. His vision for a decentralized information management system soon gave birth to the web. Another advertisement break in the middle of this article. Related articles. Amazon stopped selling its clickable dash buttons that could instantly reorder everything from detergent to condoms. Self-driving cars are back on track. The end of the console. Microsoft shows off xCloud system. Very early on, we had the feeling that history was in the making, Mr. Flukiger said, told AFP. Tim worked a lot. The lights were always on in his office. Reservations about the use of the Internet 30 years later, after its creation, have affected Sir Tim as well as his ex-colleagues. He has even launched his own campaign to save the web, quote-unquote. At the Web Summit of Lisbon in November 2018, he called for a new contract for the web based on access for all and the fundamental right to privacy, among other rights. The web has been hijacked by crooks and trolls who have used it to manipulate people all over the world, Tim warned in a New York Times op-ed in December, citing threats ranging from the dark web to cybercrime, fake news, and personal data theft. In January, the man dubbed the father of the web urged the global elites at the World Economic Forum in Davos to join the fight against the polarization of online debates. He called 
for discussion platforms that connect people with different opinions and backgrounds, contrary to today's common practice for creating online ghettos, filter bubbles, and feedback loops where people rarely feedback loops where pe- feedback loops where people feedback loops where people rarely encounter opinions different from their own feedback loops where people rarely encounter opinions different from their own feedback loops where people rarely encounter opinions different from their own united nations chief antonio gutierrez also voiced concerns at davos over the direction of the web was taking he warned of the impact of the dark web and the deep web and all problems of cybersecurity and called for the creation of soft mechanisms to help rein in countries using technologies to violate human rights. CERN has held only CERN has held on to only a few souvenirs from the early days, including the first memo that Sir Tim drafted about his invention, his black NEXT computer station and his keyboard. The only indication that history was in its old office comes in the form of a small commemorative plaque and a page from an old CERN directory hung on the door with momentarily out of the office written in jest next to Sir Sir Tim's name. CERN has since focused on preventing the web from falling into the wrong hands. In 1993, the organization announced it was putting the web software into the public domain which could have allowed any individual or business to claim it as its own and control its development. But researchers at CERN, including Mr. Fluckinger, decided in 1994 to launch a new open-source version of the web. That allowed CERN to retain the intellectual property rights to the invention while giving access to anyone to use and modify the web freely and without cost. In 1995, the intellectual property rights were transferred to a consortium set up by Sir Tim, based out of MIT, called W3C. We were lucky that during those 18 months, no one sees the web, he said, Sir Tim said. Otherwise, there might have been no web today. And that's the end of the article. Then there's um, other advertisement, Meghan Markle's relationship with the royal family, Stacy Schroeder is pregnant, I don't even know who Stacy Schroeder is. Um... Robin Wright, 54, shows off her long legs in black bikini bottoms as she and husband uh, pack on a PDA during surfing in Malibu. My cutie pie! Chloe Kardashian gushes over her daughter, True Thompson, too, as Tot enjoys a backyard dance party. A ray of sunshine! The queen makes her first official public appearance since lockdown. Struggling to get a good night's rest? Six sleep-inducing products that will put you in a more relaxed state of mind. Oh, back to this. The truth about Harvey Weinstein's shocking deformity is laid bare, as it's revealed he suffered from, uh, and then it has to get you to click on it. Something about a suicide. I don't know who that is. Never just grow up, marry a man, and become his wife. Actress Olivia Munn reveals she is happy staying single after her mother warned her against settling down. Faith Evans' husband, Stevie J, confirms they are still together as domestic violence cases dropped after she refused, after he refused to testify against her. Hmm. So those are some of the things from around the Daily Web mail. Um, 
So next up, I'm going to be reading a comment from a Redditor who uh, left some notes about the show. And uh, it's a little clunky. It's about three, four minutes long. Uh, go ahead and enjoy that. And then I'll meet you back on the other side, maybe. And we'll talk about something else. Research the history of religion is such an indescribably vague suggestion that the only reasonable way to respond to it is with laughter. That's like saying, learn math. Like, do you think I'm not aware that religious people did bad things in the past and they also did bad things specifically in the name of religion? This is like day one edgy atheist shit. It's not enlightening, enlightening in the slightest. It's like a child smugly spoiling Santa Claus for some kid two years younger than him. What you don't seem to recognize is that societies that didn't make religion central to their culture didn't survive. Bashing the very concept of religion today is like bashing the people of history for wasting their time with fire when they could have skipped right to electricity. You benefit from the advantages of living in a civilization whose values are based in the religious values of their ancestors that carry them through a very, very long stretch of time without expansive systems of laws, courts, and police on the scale that you take for granted today. You think if you wandered into someone else's town in the 1600s and committed a crime that your rights would be protected? The shared upholding of religious values is the only thing that kept people accountable to any values at all when no one or nothing else was around to guide people's behavior. This is where you say people don't need religion to know not to murder or steal. You say we can extract religious values into a secular system without the baggage of religion. Then I'd ask you to show me where in secular society you see values like mercy or redemption being celebrated. What about humanity, generosity? What about respect for your parents or elders? When I look at the loudest mouthpieces of supposed virtue in modern secular societies, progressive corporate leftists, I see a non-deistic dogmatic cult of people who habitually vilify others and offer them no forgiveness and are egotistical, dangerously <laughs> proud of their shortcomings, obsessed with with what is owed to them by others and don't believe they owe anyone anything else and have nothing but contempt for their elders, their ancestors, and any other authority figure that doesn't bend to their wailing tantrums like a baby. These people are in a non-religious cult. They clearly have a void in their life and they try to stuff it with all the corporate products and corporate agendas and corporate identities that their corporate handles, handlers allow them to have, but none of it works. They're trapped in a cycle of existential resentment, and like an abuse victim, they let them be baited over and over again into believing this time it'll be different. They're hopelessly trudging forward, believing they'll finally be happy with this time when we get this person fired, or that TV show canceled, or this statue torn down, or that politician elected, or this hashtag trending, or that word outlawed, or this demographic pandered to, or that product consumed, or that sports team to win, or this video game to come out, or that American Idol contestant to win, or whatever other fucking bullshit they focus on to distract themselves from the blatant reality that their lives are utterly meaningless, and no matter how many scapegoats they try to burn through, none of it fills a hole of genuine believing in serving something greater than yourself. Secular societies have yet to come anywhere close to offering something comparable in that regard. They have been an, an utter disaster. 
this is not a secular society in history. There is not a secular society in history whose collective happiness has ever increased. The more secular they become, the more miserable they become, and the more miserable they become, the more apathetic they become. This is why you see Islam plowing its way through the secular West, even though its values suck. Buffalo jumps. So the uh, preceding segment that you just heard was a uh, a comment left by a Reddit user. Um, I, the Reddit user name is Michelle Obama. I don't think it was Michelle Obama who I was speaking with, but basically, we were discussing a Reddit post about um, about. I forgot what it was about, but the person made some good points, so I decided to record their comment with their consent, of course. So that's that. But right now, this segment, this portion of the podcast is brought to you by nobody. I don't have advertisers yet, but, but very important. Um, again, like I mentioned earlier, I hope to further my Mindstream 12 uh, podcast using the value for value model. I also hope that listening to this is providing you with some type of value. Uh, the concept is simple. If you're listening to this, uh, whatever value that you put into this product, $2, $4, um, audio to add <laughs> to this uh, sparsely decorated podcast to spice it up a bit, grammatical uh, tips, broadcasting tips, um, editing tips, um, audio engineering tips, uh, send feedback, tell me my opinions are dumb, whatever you want, whatever the value is to you, um, pass it my way and I promise to do something productive with it. And it's kind of like a, a throw it forward type of thing. But this segment is called Buffalo Jumps. Um, and I'll explain what Buffalo Jumps are in the future. Uh, bu well, a Buffalo Jump actually is a cliff formation which Native Americans historically use to hunt and kill plains bison in mass quantities. Um, so I guess this is I traps. Traps in general, things that stop civilization from progressing forward, maybe. I don't know. Uh, so a, a progress trap, according to Wikipedia, is the condition human societies experience when, in pursuing progress through human ingenuity, they inadvertently introduce problems they do not have the resources or political will to solve for fear of short-term losses in status, stability, or quality of life. This prevents further progress and sometimes leads to societal collapse. Um, and just to kind of look around at the different, different examples of that... Um, Technology <laughs> can prove to be a progress trap, obviously. Um, some forms of medicine, obviously. Weapon, weaponry technology um, is an is a example of that. Even some forms of art, micro-cinema. I don't, I don't know. I'm going to read this. Aurora Picture Show, a micro-cinema in Houston, Texas, has released a collection of informational videos by artists who use recent technology technological tools for purposes other than what they were designed to do and in some instances in direct opposition of their intended use i don't know how it wraps around back to uh progress trap but that's what it is that's what progress trap is so um 
uh, have a forthcoming interview with a professor at a local university that I hope to throw on the pod, either the next pod or the one afterwards. Um, this will be one of the topics that we discuss, uh, progress shop, uh, and, and another, you know, under the value for value model, um, if you have an idea about future, uh, Buffalo traps, maybe you, uh, Buffalo jumps, that is not Buffalo traps, Buffalo jumps. If you have any ideas for future segments, maybe you can produce that segment of the podcast for me. Yeah. Who knows? Who knows how it all works? Uh, just kind of spitballing there. Easter Island is an example, apparently, of a progress trap, um, and that is what we will kind of discuss today. Um, so, in a green history of the world, Clive Ponting gives us a sobering account of one society's demise as a direct result of development. He relates in detail how the Southern Pacific Ocean's Easter Islanders remote from any other civilized civilization, slowly succumb to the results of their ingenuity. For a thousand years after their arrival on the island, the inhabitants, wait, for a thousand years after their arrival on the island, the inhabitants, who were of Polynesian origin, carved out for themselves not only an existence, but an advanced culture, from an inhospitable volcanic island. By the 16th century, the once densely wooded island of 150 square miles in area boosted 600 of those extraordinary stone monuments for which Easter Island is known today. The price for this enterprise was devastation. In the 19th century, explorers found the meager population reduced to abject squalor and cannibalism. The island was no longer able to support much life at all. What happened? The transportation of the monuments from quarry to destination has a, was accomplished with the help of tree trunks as rollers. Such was the passion for the enterprise that in time all the island's trees were cut down except those in the extinct volcano. The Easter Islanders could not avoid starvation on their barren treeless island and because there were no wood because there was no wood even for building boats they were trapped there. Victims of their own ingenuity, the society succumbed to misery. And that was uh, apparently from some book, uh, Collapsed by Jared Diamond, published by Viking Penguin, New York, 2005. I think Jared Diamond, wasn't that the same guy who did Steels, Beams, and Automobiles, or whatever that book was? I think that's the same guy. Basically... We just have to be more conscious of how we develop as a society, as a humanity. Um, some of the things that we're saying today is June 13th, 2020, middle of uh, the coronavirus pandemic thing, in the middle of civil unrest in the United States. Um, we're seeing a lot of changes um, in how we care for ourselves, care for our community, how we pay for things, um, universal basic income, which I maybe will try to tackle, has been a concept that's been around for quite a while. Um, so we're making changes to society, inevitable changes. We're, we're 20 years into the 21st century. Some of the modes of living and, and integrating ourselves with technology are changing 
baby. The hair changing. Uh, me talking into this microphone right now is one of those changes, how we've just integrated and how we've just become more enamored with progress, I guess, would be the right way to put it. Uh, I, I, again, this is I'd love to have a discussion on this, and I don't want this to be a one-sided talking at you type of thing. So, again, if you have feedback about this, if you have feedback about any other portion of the podcast, please let me know. Um, this will be, I think, the third. No, the second. I'm sorry. The second segment here. Um, I got one more segment in me <laughs> uh, coming up next. But first... A little music. Don't know exactly what it's going to be, but it's going to be something that I'm able to put on the podcast without infringing any copyright trademarks or, or any of that mess. So please enjoy it. Um, and again, value for value. This is one segment. Maybe you can help me produce a future segment that's better. I'm sure it's better. I mean, I could come up with a better segment myself and I made the damn thing myself. Um, Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. So the next segment is coming up. Um, We will see how that works. The Industrial Revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race. They have greatly increased the life expectancy of those of us who live in advanced countries, but they have destabilized society, have made life unfulfilling, have subjected human beings to indignities. All right. I hope you enjoyed the uh, previous segment. It wasn't music like I thought it was going to be, but it was something just as good. Something I came across, uh, came across of uh, on the internet. Um, you know, inserting different things like that into the podcast again, value for value. So, if you have something better that I can produce, uh, go ahead and throw it my way. Um, right now, I wanted to do. Something I didn't know what I wanted to do at first, but then I said, ah, "Let's do a, a a this week in history segment." Today again is June thirteenth, twenty twenty. Just wanted to kind of peruse historynet.com to see what they have for me in terms of uh, what the world looked like this day years ago. Uh, one of the first things that pops up in 1863, that's June 13th, 1863, Confederate forces on their way to the Gettysburg clash with Union troops at the Second Battle of Winchester, Virginia. Take that for what uh, it is. The U.S. Post Office Department rules that children may not be sent by parcels posts. That was in 1920. So in 1920, the U.S. Postal Office Department rules that children may not be sent by parcel post. So I don't know if there was a precedent that led up to that uh, determination, but there you have it, June 13th, 1920. June, June, 19, June 13th, 1923, the French, uh, Avoir, set a trade barrier between occupied Ruhr and the rest of Germany. No idea what that's about. But 1940, Paris is evacuated as the Germans advanced on the city. 1940 is not that long ago. My father would have been born eight years after this um, this occurrence. Paris evacuated as Germans advanced on the city. I'm sure that 1940 has something to do with World War II, uh, uh, Hitler, Nazis, something. 1943, yeah. 
German spies land on Long Island, New York, and are soon captured. In 1943, German spies land on Long Island, New York, and are soon captured. Don't know how real that is. Can't speak to the validity of it. But 1943, June 13th, 1943, German spies were captured on U.S. soil, apparently. And a lot of this is about World War II. 1971, the New York Times begins publishing the Pentagon Papers. I guess there's a discussion somewhere in there on whether or not anything became, you know, came of the Pentagon Papers. But 1978, Israelis withdraw the last of their invading forces from Lebanon. In 1979, Sioux Indians are awarded $105 million in compensation for the 1877 U.S. seizure of the Black Hills in South Dakota. Where did all that money go? And in 1983, June 13th, 1983, Pioneer 10, already in space for 11 years, leaves the solar system. So we've had, on June 13th, monumental changes to society. And that was kind of the theme of this show and maybe future shows. Just how much we've changed as a humanity. How ambitious we are. We sent a Pioneer 10. I'm sure that's some kind of... um, space vehicle uh into space we shot it in the space and in 1983 uh it leaves the solar system in 1940 uh the french are evacuated from paris because of germans um and and to me the biggest one on the list well tied for the biggest ones first biggest one was the 1979 sioux indians were what 105 million dollars in 1979 money that's a lot of dough um but the other one german spies uh, land on Long Island, New York. So they're on USO. Didn't learn about that and don't remember learning about that in, in the history books. But back rounding about to uh, Pioneer 10 and, and talking about progress, progress jumps or what was that phrase from earlier? Progress, whatever it was. Progress traps. Progress traps. Um, Pioneer 10 may have been a pioneer trap for us, right? P- pioneer 10. Um, and it was, um, or it is, Wikipedia still has it listed as it is, um, a a space probe that the U.S. sent out, NASA sent it out, um, and it left our solar system. So it's traveling around out there, out in space, boundless, may or may not run into aliens, who knows, but... Um, Radio communications were lost with Pioneer 10 on January 23rd, 2003. So that was many, many years after it left the solar system. Think about that. Think about that, ladies and gentlemen. In 1983, it leaves our solar system. In 2003, we lose radio communication. What, in those uh, 20 years or so, what did NASA capture? What are they hiding from us? What are they going to do? Uh, is this all a simulation? Are we living in a simulation? And there will be a disclosure one day of, of what Probe 10 or Pioneer 10 uh, transmit. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just spitballing now. Uh, the duration of that mission, by the way, was 30 years, 10 months, 22 days for Pioneer 10. Anything else interesting on Pioneer 10? 
No, nope, not that I see. So the other, let's go to the um, Sioux Indians. <laughs> Sioux Indians are what 105 million people now, and and I know it's different across the United States with um, American Indians and and all that good stuff. But all you ever hear about uh, Native Americans, American Indians, are um, just how bad their plight has been. Right? They they have these reservations they're stuffed into and. Um, women are being murdered apparently, or sex trafficked <laughs> up in um up in Canada. But here is a article from the Washington Post by Fred Barbash and Peter Elkin on um Peter Elkin. I think that's the guy from PBS, isn't it? July first, nineteen eighty. The Supreme Court yesterday ordered the United States to pay the Sioux Nation more than one hundred and five million for the government's illegal seizure of Indian lands in South Dakota's Black Hills a century ago. The court voted eight to one in upholding the largest Indian land compensation award in U.S. history and setting a standard for future claims that could greatly assist other tribes trying to recover from broken treaties. The court ruled that the nations, in quotes, nations. Given the Sioux in the given to wait, the court ruled that the nations given the Sioux hmm, in the 1870s when the government took the land were not just compensation for the 7.3 million gold laden acres sacred to the Sioux. Though the award was the largest, it does not approach the 1980 equivalent of the 70 million the Indians sought last century or the billions of dollars worth of gold, gold extracted by whites from the home stake mine on the territory. The case was resolved yesterday, but not without controversy. Many Indian leaders are demanding return of the land rather than money for it. The Black Hills, encompassing 6,000 square miles in western South Dakota and northeastern Wyoming, draw their name from the dark pines covering the peaks. The area is now primarily a tourist attraction, much of it uh, national park and national forest with the most famous feature being the Mount Rushmore bust of four presidents. Just to reiterate, Mount Rushmore was the the site where Mount Rushmore is uh, was stolen by from the Native Americans. I don't know. <clears throat> Where's the outrage? The court case, which is about 60 years old. Again, this article is from 1980. The court case, which is about 60 years old. It's one of the longest of any in U.S. history. The land legally belonged to the Sioux under the 1851 Fort Laramie Treaty, which was approved by Congress before discovery of gold in the area in the 1870s. Following that discovery, miners descended on the territory, sparking armed conflict with the Indians and ultimately the last stand of General George Armstrong Custer, who died while fighting Sioux Chief Sitting Bull at the Little Big Bighorn River in 1876. Unable to control the miners or the Indians, the government tried to acquire the land by trading it for subsistence, subsistence provisions worth about $6 million at the time. When the Sioux proved uninterested in the deal, Congress, enraged by Custer's death, seized the land unilaterally, claiming the Indians agreed to it. In 1922, the Sioux began a legal fight and lobbying effort to recover the land. After Congress acted several times to help the Indians, the U.S. Court of Claims ruled in 1979 that the Sioux deserved $17 million for the land and 5% annual interest on that amount for a total of at least $105 million. So that's how they came up with that number. Interesting. There was no good faith effort by the government to award the Indians just compensation. 
the Court of Claims ruled. Under Indian claims law, the $17 million can be awarded merely for a dishonorable dealing by the government. Everyone, including the Justice Department, agreed that the Sioux were dishonorably treated and the government did not contest the $17 million award. So, so they actually paid, the government paid $17 million to the Sioux for the atrocities, atrocities that occurred um, during the 1800s and decided in 1980 to give them $17 million for it. And then, of course, there's the 5% interest uh, that was tacked on, which ballooned it up to $105 million. The 5% interest can be awarded only if the government violated the Fifth Amendment's ban on taking land without just compensation. In its agreements before the Supreme Court, the Justice Department denied that such a constitutional violation had occurred. With Justice Harry A. Blackman writing for the majority, the court yesterday rejected the government's argument. The lower court was correct in holding that the substance rations given the Sioux, given to the Sioux, were only payment for depriving them of their chosen way of life and not intended to compensate them for taking of the Black Hills, Blackburn wrote. The dissenter of the opinion was Justin, Justice William H. Rehnquist. The details of dispersing the money from the U.S. Treasury are to be worked out between the government and the Sioux lawyers. But the Sioux have been debating for years whether to accept the money or seek return of the land instead. I would have won for the land. Fuck it. In a referendum last year, the, San, the Standing Rock Sioux voted... Standing Rock Sioux? Wasn't that where the um, pipeline stuff was? I don't know. Voted to accept the money. Other scheduled votes are likely to go the other way. Lawyers were divided yesterday on the question of both accepting money and seeking return of the land. The latter would require at least an act of Congress which is thought highly unlikely, even in 1980. The Treasury Department will place the funds in interest-bearing accounts until Indian leaders and government officials sort out who is entitled to the share of the award. The legal fees from such an award are themselves potentially massive. Several lawyers representing various Sioux reservations could divide as much as $10 million. For some of these attorneys, however, it will be the first fees they have seen from a case they haven't been involved in, in for 12 to 20 years. The tribes and Bureau of Indian Affairs officials must decide what to do with the rest and submit their plan to Congress. Well, again, 1980 Washington Post article regarding that $105 million settlement from the government to the Sioux Reservation in South Dakota. So, I mean, there you have it. Uh, justice is not perfect, but I think there is a concentrated effort to um, make amends, maybe, you know? We try to make it right. You know, for as much as we bitch and moan and complain about slavery, it was written out of, out of the Constitution. It was written, written out of law. Then, you know, you have the side effects with criminal justice and all that good stuff. Uh, there you have it. One last piece to leave you with. Almost everyone will agree that we live in a deeply troubled society. One of the most widespread manifestations of this craziness of our world is leftism. So a discussion of the psychologically psychology of leftism can serve as an introduction to the discussion of the problems of modern society in general. That was Ted Kaczynski. All right, everybody, thanks for tuning in to Mindstream 12. Uh, my name is William. Uh, see you next episode. This has been a production of the Independent Content Empire. Bye-bye.